This morning I want to begin a little differently than we normally do. I want to take us back to before Easter for just a moment, to the night before Good Friday, in fact, that we today call Maundy Thursday. It's a night which ended with Jesus' arrest in a place that the Hebrews called Gate Shemin. We call it Gethsemane. Today you can walk through Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. You can literally walk in the footsteps of Christ through Gethsemane, just as several of us did less than two weeks ago. There as you walk through Gethsemane, you can also see olive trees that have been there for more than 2,000 years. Several of these trees were there when Jesus prayed in the garden the night before he went to the cross. They stand today as ancient yet silent witnesses of the deep anguish that Jesus felt in that place. The Hebrew word get shemen is actually a very common word that the people used long before it became so closely associated with Jesus on Maundy Thursday. Get shemen in Hebrew literally means olive press. And many of us who were on the trip to Israel a couple of weeks ago, we were incredibly moved by a moment when an ancient olive press was demonstrated in front of us. And what stood out to us was not just the making of olive oil and the process, which is fascinating, of course, but it was the sound of the olives and, in particular, the pits of the olives being crushed. When you hear that sound, that loud cracking and popping sound, it, it literally sounds like bones breaking. It sounds like life is being crushed. And though we know of Jesus, according to the prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures, that none of his bones were actually broken when he went through the process of his crucifixion, Isaiah had written about Jesus 700 years before it happened, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. It's by his wounds that we are healed. And there was just something about standing around this press, hearing the sounds of life being crushed that brought us to a new reality of the deep anguish that Jesus was feeling on the night before he went to the cross. On the night, the Bible says that he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Jesus was carrying that weight, knowing that these words from Isaiah were about him, knowing that he was just hours away from feeling our transgressions upon him, from enduring in his physical body what it would be to be crushed for our iniquities and knowing at the deepest level of his soul that though we would be healed it would be by his wounds and by his literally taking our sin upon himself so that we might be able to say we can be right with God in the garden of Gethsemane on that Maundy Thursday, Jesus told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. 
and he sweat drops of blood. Finally, he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus surrendered his body. He gave of himself on the cross just hours after this so that we truly might be set free from our sin. It was also on that first Maundy Thursday that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He, he modeled what it means to take on the nature of a servant, even though he truly was and is the king. And then after washing his disciples' feet, during the time that they had one last meal together, one last supper before Jesus went to the cross, he instituted these symbols for us that we will take today as a reminder of his death and as a reminder of his victory over death, the victory that we share not because of our will, but because of the will of the Father and the gift of salvation provided by Jesus Christ himself. So our scripture reading today reminds us of that Thursday when the Lord instituted communion, the Lord's Supper. But our reading does not come from the Gospels. It comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, reminding some early Christians about why these symbols are important and about how it's supposed to look when we as the church today take of the elements together. So I want to invite you to stand with me as I read our scripture this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 11. You may be seated. So Paul is writing to a group of Christians a few decades after Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and then went to the cross and rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he wrote to the Corinthians about this practice because it was such an essential part of what the early church was doing. For the next few weeks, we're going to be in a series that I'm going to call This Thing We Call Church. It felt like a good time for us just to take a few weeks coming out of Easter to remember what the church is, more specifically who the church is, and who Christ has called us to be as his body in this world. And at, at the center 
of what the early church was doing when they gathered together they they opened god's word they broke bread in their homes they they gave generously to each other they served each other in so many important ways to set an example for us they also came together and they broke bread in a symbolic way and they passed around the cup in a symbolic way just as jesus had told them to do in remembrance of him they also used these two symbols to point to the cross and to remember that at the center of their faith and at the center of the church is the message of the gospel of jesus christ but we get here in the context of first corinthians 11 that the church in corinth was not healthy in this way they were observing the lord's supper but some people were doing it in a selfish manner they, they were, were fighting over who would get to the table first. Some people were actually coming to the table not just to take a little bit for the symbol, but to fill their stomachs. And so some people would come to the table at the end of the line and there would be nothing left to remember the Lord's death. Paul writes just a couple of verses earlier than what we read. In the following directives, you Christians there in Corinth, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, your worship gatherings are doing more harm than good. Not a great description of what was happening in their church. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. What was happening in worship in corinth and in that body in that church was doing more harm than it was doing good it was not that which zach described last week from philippi paul reminds that church in philippi which was was so healthy at the time remember when you come together in humility think about the needs of your brothers and sisters in christ above your own do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility value each other as higher than yourselves what a wonderful directive to the church these folks in corinth weren't living it out that that was not a, a description of what was happening in their worship instead each person was looking to their own interests above those of others and what was happening in corinth was not unique to that place and it was not unique to that time this is what human nature really is human nature is more often to look out for our own interests than those of others that's why the teaching of the new testament and the example of jesus himself is so countercultural and it's so counterintuitive to the way we think as human beings because christ modeled for us not looking out for number one but service and laying down our lives for the good of others so Paul says, look, before you even come to the table, you need to get your hearts back in the right place. You need to clean up the house just a little bit and make sure that each and every one of you are coming to this table with the right frame of mind, the right spirit, the right attitude, and with love for your brother and sister in Christ so that you don't take these symbols in an unworthy manner. The picture that Jesus gives us through these symbols is a picture of covenant. It's a picture of promise. 
And we, as the church, are new covenant people. Our, our church, our lives, our faith is built on a new thing that Jesus Christ has done for us. And so today, as a part of our worship, we are going to, to take these elements together. We're going to observe these symbols. But I want us to consider, before we do, what it means for us to be new covenant people. And to understand that first, we need to dig into that word covenant for just a moment. This is without question my favorite biblical word. There is so much wrapped up in this word that constantly reminds us that our faith, our confidence, our hope is not built on anything that comes from within us, but on the promises of God and his faithfulness. And listen, here's another thing I love about covenant. That word so often as it comes up in scripture is God's reminder that the promises we believe are for us, but they're also for our children, and they're for our children's children, and they're for their children. They're from generations that we pray will grow out of us as branches of a healthy tree who will be God's covenant people for generations to come carrying forth his word to the ends of the earth the promises of God's covenant are the promises upon which we take our stand and that's why Paul begins here in this text we read by reminding them that the commands for observing the Lord's Supper don't come from Paul, but they were instituted by the Lord Jesus himself. He set this up for us. He modeled this. It was Jesus who said, do this in remembrance of me. These instructions came from the Lord, but they came, as we read, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. When we hear those words on the night he was betrayed, do we feel the deep sense of injustice that comes with them? Do we feel the, the heavy weight that Jesus was feeling, but also that we ought to feel just by those words, he was betrayed? The fact that Jesus was betrayed for us is a reminder that he identifies with all who have been betrayed he personally in his flesh but also in his spirit in his soul can identify as a a human being with what it feels like to be betrayed what it feels like for somebody to work behind our back what it feels like to to be wrongfully accused and to face injustice when we feel that deep sense of betrayal when we look at the world and say something's not right about all of this or when personally something happens to us and and we know in the depth of our being this just isn't right jesus says to us i've been there in fact the injustice that jesus feels is on a much deeper level than us because we we bring on a lot of our own problems upon ourselves but Acts chapter 8, quoting scripture from Isaiah, reminds us in, in Christ's humiliation, he was deprived of justice. No one can speak of his descendants. His life was taken from the earth, and it was taken 
in such a way that the deepest level of injustice was seen. Yet Jesus was willing to surrender himself to all of this because of God's covenant with humanity. Because of God's promise to his own people, you will be my people and I will be your God. And listen, for that to remain true, for, for, for we who are, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, to be one, it took Christ Jesus fulfilling that covenant for us. It took Christ going to the cross so that we can say we are his people. He is our God. God brought this on himself through Jesus Christ and willingly became the sacrifice for us. He willingly showed us just how deep his covenant promises for his people go. When you look back to all of scripture from the Hebrew scriptures forward, that word covenant comes up a lot, and there are a lot of symbols that represent God's covenant. It started with Abraham with the slaughtering of animals, and then it, it moved to the practice of circumcision. Then the, the, the covenant began to be represented through the ark that was created, the ark of the covenant with God's presence and God's law inside under the leadership of Moses. And then the temple became the symbol of God's covenant through David and through Solomon. And then God began to make covenant promises to his people that he would establish them and, and multiply them and bless them so that they could be a blessing. And in many ways, those, those last covenant promises in the Hebrew scripture were seen through David's kingly line and constant reminders that came out to the people God has established this throne and he will sit on the throne of David forever in Jesus Christ. The symbols of the covenant are, are many throughout the Hebrew scriptures, but the basis of the covenant is one beautiful Hebrew word. There were all these symbols, but at the, the heart of the covenant is this Hebrew word kesed, which is often translated as love or faithful love or generous love or maybe even some of your translations would say covenant love. What's at the basis of God's promises he's made to us? What's at the heart of God's love for his people? It's his covenant. It's not the law. It's not ritual and religion. It's not a building. It's not an object. It's not even a throne. What's at the heart of God's covenant promise to us is his covenant love. His love is so great, for God loved us so much that even in the depth of our sin and disobedience and our constant breaking of our covenant with Him, God so loved the world that He gave His Son so that whoever believes in Him will not have to experience death, but can have eternal life because of His covenant love, His his chesed for his people. The symbols of God's covenant are many. The basis of God's covenant is his chesed, his covenant love, and the fulfillment of God's covenant is the Messiah. It all comes together in Jesus Christ. 
We take these symbols, we worship and we pray today in Jesus' name because he is the fulfillment of the covenant. And listen, it is our identity in Jesus Christ that makes us new covenant people. That's why we are who we say we are. That's why we come together as the church and do what we do. It's because of Jesus. He is all that matters when it's all said and done. And as new covenant people, the promises upon which our lives as Christians are built are in Christ and the new covenant of his blood. Thus he gave us these new symbols, not the slaughtering of animals, not circumcision, not an object, not a building, not even a throne. He gave us these symbols to be at the center of our worship so that we would remember what it means to be new covenant people. So that we would not mistake this and get distracted or pulled back into some of those ways that Jesus Christ came and fulfilled himself. One of the things I love about the Lord's Supper, I, I usually mention this every time we take it, whether you called in your tradition growing up, if you grew up in a Christian tradition, whether you called this the Lord's Supper, whether you called this communion, or whether you called it the Eucharist, it doesn't matter. If you're in a Christian tradition, these symbols end up being a key part of what you do, what you understand, and the way that you worship. And today, it doesn't matter where you go, because the church is a global church. There are are. are people worshiping christ in every corner of this planet it doesn't matter which one you go to at some point if you're there long enough you'll see these symbols you may not understand anything else that's happening in worship there in their language in their reading in their songs but if these two symbols come out because christ instituted them for us you know what it means we know what it's all about you might come across these symbols in a house church in China or a mud hut in Cameroon or in an auditorium setting like this one in the United States. I love the way a pastor from India described this. He said, Christ gave all of himself, not just part of himself, for all of the world, not just part of the world. And the Lord's Supper is a gift to the global body of Christ, to every believer who gathers in his name in every part of the world so that we would be unified in this. We might speak a different language. We might dress differently. We might have a different culture. We might not like hanging out with each other all the time in other settings. But when the bread and the cup are before us, in this we have unity. In this we remember the foundation of our faith is built upon Jesus Christ. So that the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper are unifying symbols for us. Like baptism, the bread and the cup reflect both our personal identity in Christ, but also our communal identity in Christ, that we are God's people. Each and every one of us through Jesus Christ are God's persons and together as the church we are God's people so that Jesus said on the night he was betrayed 
this bread is my body. Remember my body, which is for you. And when you take the bread, do this in remembrance that you are unified in your confession that Christ gave his literal physical body so that we could be set free from our sin. And in the same way he said, when you take the cup, remember that word covenant. Remember God's faithful, compassionate love for you. That this cup represents a new covenant and the symbol of the new covenant, the promises in which you believe, is the very blood of Jesus Christ himself. So we, as the church, become Christ's body. We are his body now on earth. We are his hands and his feet so that the nations would know, that our neighbors would know that God loves us so much that he gave his son so that we can have life. We're his body, but listen, here's another symbol from the table. We're his bride. And the symbol of the cup that Jesus used is a symbol of covenant because it's the symbol of the marriage cup. It's the symbol that that the Hebrews would use in their wedding where the husband, the soon-to-be husband, would take the cup and would give it to his bride. And he would say to her in giving of this cup of life, this cup of covenant, this cup of their family, that we are now one together. We are equals. We are united through what God has done for us. And we share this cup of a covenant, a promise that should never, ever be broken. These symbols are rich. They're full of life. They're, they're built upon the word of God. They remind us that we are his body. They remind us that we are his bride. And then here's the last part of this text. These symbols also remind us that as disciples, we are sent people. We are sent by Christ so that these symbols are not just a part of our worship in a space like this, but they represent the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we take with us when we walk out of these doors and we go into all the places that life takes us and that the Lord leads us. So we move from covenant to the symbols to the commission. And don't you love how this text ends with a commission? A reminder, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes back. It's, an, it's a lifelong commission and commitment that we make that these symbols, which are symbols of covenant, and they're symbols of Christ's love and sacrifice, and they're symbols of unity, are also symbols of our commission. To take the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. To make disciples in every nation. And to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as New Covenant people, we believe not only that God sent Christ to us, but that Christ has called us to be sent people. To each and every place he takes us whether in our community or around the world.